Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another and impacting the world. study 2nd Corinthians and still in chapter 1 and moving on to the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Um, a difficult topic today I need to say at this point uh, but follow with me let's see how we can learn what God has to say to us uh, through this particular passage. I'm going to read then from chapter 1 and verse 12. So Paul writing, he says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day our Lord Jesus, of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad and, who, uh, and, and, and the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should suffer, who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure that uh, all of you, that my joy would be the joy of all of you. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So just so far, uh, let's once again just pray. Lord, your word is truth. And may we understand this truth here today in application, in our own context, in our own lives. And Lord, our prayer is that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would work among us, in us. And even, Lord, through us, we pray uh, going forward, and particularly as we consider the matter of relationships, navigating at times difficult relationships, uh, give us much wisdom 
and grace, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, I thought I'd begin by saying there definitely are times, and I hope that you recognize this in your own life, as hard as it is to be willing to receive some kind of rebuke and correction from a friend. It's, it's, it's tough. It's, it's hard to hear things we don't want to hear about ourselves. But I think most of us, certainly as we walk as believers, understand that we have blind spots, that we have some uh, spots and, and wrinkles. And, and so there is value, I believe, and I think most here would believe, in being open to hear from a trusted friend the hard things about ourselves. And especially, I certainly am very aware of a proverb, and uh, 27, Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We don't want syrupy, sweet talk from people just in a uh, superficial way. We want to hear uh, honestly and truthfully where correction is needed. That's one side of the reality of life. What, however, do you do when harsh Unfair criticism is directed toward you. That's it's different. It's different. What do you do when when you know you've acted honorably? You've you've sought to do that which is pleasing to God. You've done so with a clear conscience, and then for some or other reason, you are misrepresented by someone else and you've been accused of dishonest or deviant behavior. Ever happened to you? I think it has. So what do you do? What do, what do we do? Well, when we go to this passage, we, we need to see something of the context here. The, uh, in his role as an apostle, remember the, the Paul is an apostle, he had confronted some moral issues within the church. And, and he'd done so. We can look at the end of chapter 2 and uh, at least the beginning of chapter 2, at the end of that little passage, he said, I wrote to you out of much affliction, anguish of heart, uh, with many tears, because there were, there were legitimate issues that he needed to address in the church. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So, so he was practicing faithful of the wounds of a friend. But it was not received well by many people. They didn't like what he said. And, and so the, the, there are these, uh, there's a group of critics uh, that emerge in this church at Corinth, and, and they reject Paul as an apostle. They don't like, they don't like what he had said, and so they want to, to, to criticize him. And, and, and they did this in a context, taking an opportunity because he had made plans, he had communicated plans that he was about to visit them, that he would spend the winter in Corinth, and he had intentions. He was to collect some offerings that they had put together, and he would take those back to the Jews in Judea and Jerusalem. And uh, much to his regret, much to his embarrassment, he had to change his plans. And so this then became the opportunity for these critics, these rebellious people at Corinth, to discredit the apostle. 
They took the opportunity of accusing him of being inconsistent and fickle and saying he's saying one thing, but he does another thing. And, and the problem was, the problem or the consequence of this was they were insinuating, man, if you can't trust this guy when he says he's coming to visit us and he doesn't, how then can you trust his authority in other matters of faith and doctrine? See the problem? So they were seeking to undermine his authority as an apostle. And so the portion I read today is, is a response to them. He responds to these allegations, and, and, and we see, we've seen him already as a man of, of weakness, uh, suffering. But we will see today that he, in fact, is a man that acts and responds with integrity. But I want you to try and make this... Uh, sermon, this message practical, and so I've tried to divide it into two sections. And, and, and the question I want to answer then is, how do you respond? How can you respond to unfair uh, criticism? And, and what we see in this passage in the first instance, and I'm just going to touch on this, is you can act according to what our passage calls earthly wisdom, worldly wisdom. Have a look at verse 12. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom. That was an option. It's an option for you and for me to take on and use the wisdom of the world in the way that we relate to people who criticize us unfairly. But what, what is that? What does that look like when, when we behave in an earthly or a, a worldly way? And, and, and as I understand it, is the nature of worldliness is, is that it pushes God to the edge. God is not seen to be at the center. God is removed from the picture, and we simply behave by impulse according to the flesh. I must confess I've done that at times. I think I've been around in this church and leaders meetings and some of you and you've probably seen some of my own fleshliness in reaction. Trying to, I have tried to work on that uh, with God's help over the years and, and, and I wonder honestly yourselves this morning, have you had those moments, those occasions when your response has been earthly or worldly, and God has not been taken into consideration, and, and God has been relegated to the edge, and, and, and it's a fleshly thing. It's a, it's a sinful thing. In fact, one, one author that I read uh, puts it like this. He says, worldliness is what makes sin normal in an age and righteousness seem odd. So we just feel we must act like this, and, and, and righteousness, again, is not in the picture. When we react with worldly wisdom, it normally is defensive. And when we are defensive, we are asking the questions, what is best for me? Uh, how can I benefit? How can I clear my name in this particular instance? And I thought of maybe two ways that I've, I've seen that manifest. Uh, retaliate, retaliating, sort of retaliation becomes a, a common worldly response where we're tempted to think that the best way of, 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 of defending ourselves is to attack the other person. 
many we do that sometimes in marriages and relationships? You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You've done this to me, I'm going to do that to you. And, and, and so, the, but that's fleshly, that's, that's worldly. And, and Paul said, well, we didn't respond in that kind of way. Another way I've discovered a response of, to unfair criticism is indulging in self-pity. Man, I'm guilty of this one. Feeling sorry for myself, feeling sorry. Why on earth is this happening to me? And, and there's a possibility then of ending up as someone who's sulking and feeling sorry for yourself, withdrawing from people. That's the danger. Uh, hiding yourself from others, allowing discouragement to set in, immobilizing you. And then what that does, it renders you ineffective in ministry and it breaks down relationships. So that's the one side. Paul says, we did not, I did not respond in a worldly uh, way. But there's a second point. So you can act that way, but you can also act according to God's grace. And I think that's where I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon. Um, again, verse 12, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. So what does that look like? How do we respond? Now, grace immediately is, is a, a well-known concept in the Christian community. We sang this song this morning, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, and I think most people would answer the question, uh, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And our immediate thinking is grace has everything to do with God. And, and that's right. It has, it has everything to do with God, but there's a consequence. And, and so grace, I want to show you in this passage this morning, is definitely something, it's a disposition of God. It's, 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 it's a quality of God in, in the way that he acts towards people, towards us in ways that we do not deserve. But there's more. And the more is this. Grace is also an influence from God that works in us to change our capacities in the way that we act and respond to people in the different circumstances of life. So grace isn't just a concept out there. It's not something I just say, well, I benefit from this because God is, is, is uh, good to me as an undeserving person. It also influences me. It should influence me in the way that I act, the way that you act as a recipient of grace. And so to put it succinctly, the word of grace also refers to the action or the power or the influence which produces practical outcomes in the believer's life. Like being sufficient for good deeds, doing good. Like enduring, remember we'll get to this later in the book of Corinthians, like enduring a thorn in the flesh. Remember Paul saying, my grace is sufficient for you. It influenced him, it had an outworking in his life. And as I see in this passage over here, like responding to harsh criticism, unkind criticism from people. Paul here does act with integrity, not with worldly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and I'm going to show you what I've tried to put together as a summary of different aspects of how that grace shows itself, how that 
grace's influence works out in the life of a believer. Number one, grace produces godliness. You can't say you're a believer. I can't say I'm a believer and there's no evidence of godliness. That's in essence what we're saying here. And, and so, so Paul's here saying, at the center of my life, there is God. And, and because there is God and because there's grace, I, my response is in simplicity and godly sincerity. In other words, in my mind, in my heart, in my action, I'm considering that which is pleasing to God. It's not just about me. And, and, and so this is, this is about God at work in me and God working through me. It's not my doing separate from God's grace. I can't take credit for it. It's not my doing. It's not worldly wisdom. It is God kindly working in me and through me. And here's the point. To act contrary to the sinful nature. See, believers don't have to act according to the flesh. And so he's able to say, my conscience on this point is clear. I have maintained integrity. There's a godliness. There's a submission to God. There's, a, there's an acting in a way that is pleasing to God. Folk, it's the fruit of a changed life. Without grace, without God being in the picture where the sinful nature dominates, what do we see? see malice, you'll see bitterness, you'll see rage, you'll see unforgiveness, and you'll see harshness. Grace produces godliness. Number two, just a, a short observation. Uh, grace produces transparency, I called it. And I see this in verse 13. Uh, Paul writing to them, he says, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge, and I hope you will fully acknowledge. What, what's he saying there? He, he's saying, man, there's, there, you don't have to read between the lines. You don't have to guess because of some kind of innuendo. You, you don't need to be looking for double meanings. What I say is what I mean. There's no, there's no need to look for something else. I'm, I'm the sort of person, and, and it, it, it's true, we see this throughout Paul's writings because he's so direct. What he says he means. And so grace overcomes the temptation to play the political game. Grace overcomes the temptation to cover up uh, thoughts or, 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 or uh, attempts at double talk or half-truths or manipulation and exaggeration. So being a, a recipient of grace, the challenge to us as believers ought to change us. Be honest. Be transparent. Uh, there's no need to hide anything. Uh, we can behave as those who understand we live in the presence of God as recipients of grace. So we're going to sing later on, you know, my sin, there are many, mercy is more. We understand that. We're not perfect people, but we are pursuing a life of godliness being sanctified. Number three, I think grace exposes humanity. What do I mean by that? And again, have a look at verse 15. It says, because I was, sure of, I was sure of this, I wanted to come to visit you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. By that way, that simply means that he was going to have a second visit or another visit. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. 
Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no? He's arguing a point here, saying that, you know what? I plan to the best of my ability, and then in the course of time, I had to change my plans. And so he asked, asks, does, does that make me unspiritual? Does that make me fickle? Does that make me a worldly man vacillating between two opinions? No. It simply exposes the fact that he's a finite human being. And when he made plans, he made those plans with the best intentions at a given point in time. He communicated that to them. And in the unfolding of time, things changed and had to change his plan. He's, he's a person. Like, like we are people, and, and we don't know what will happen tomorrow. We, we can make plans, and we can even give undertakings, but, but things may change. We people have real limitations, and Paul also had these limitations, uh, not knowing how the days ahead would unfold. But then he moves on to, the, to another point. Uh, fourthly, grace confirms the gospel is reliable. So against the fact that we people are finite and we have limited knowledge limited understanding he says now in verse 18 as surely as god is faithful our word to you has not been yes and no so what he's saying over here is yes there's limited understanding for ourselves in our planning i changed my plans but the message is unchanged the gospel message remains the same yesterday today and forever jesus stays the same forever the gospel is trustworthy. God is faithful. Verse 19. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, see, there's the message, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no. It wasn't a bit this today and a bit that tomorrow and change the next day. No. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is Jesus. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to the glory of God. We people will let each other down. That's a fact. We are sinful people. We are finite. We struggle with remaining marks of the flesh, of sin, even as believers. But God is faithful. We can always stand firm on the gospel, the reality of the message of the good news that Jesus came, that every promise in the Old Testament, I've been doing a study. There's some of you that follow me on a Wednesday night. I do an online study. We've been doing it in the book of Genesis. And uh, I've, tried to be, I've tried to pick out some fundamental worldview issues from the book of Genesis right from the very beginning. And, and, and the wonderful thing, again, that I've been reminded of in Genesis is that God from the very begin, beginning gives an undertaking uh, the, the seed of the serpent will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. We already have the gospel message proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3. And you have generations that follow after generation. And, and God eventually brings about because he promised the coming of Jesus. He's the gospel stands. Everything said in the Old Testament is confirmed in the fulfillment of the New Testament. So, in Jesus, yes, amen to every promise that has been given. 
And so the confidence, Paul has confidence in proclaiming Jesus as the solution to, to, to mankind's spiritual searching. We need the forgiveness of sins. We need acceptance with God. We need the favor of God. Well, you can be sure the gospel of Christ provides that. Number five, grace is always a gift from God. Just listen to the description of what God does here in verse 21. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. I'm busy reading in my own devotional time at the moment the book of Ezekiel. If you want a challenge, read the book. You must read with a pencil. And, and the reason I'm reading the book of Ezekiel with a pencil is that I'm uh, marking, I'm circling uh, repeated phrases and words. There are two phrases, and I'm almost at the end of the book now, that uh, I feel I could almost preach two messages on. The one phrase is, I will. That's what God says. Every chapter, almost every second, third, fourth line, he's saying, I will. And the point is, God acts. God acts graciously toward people who don't deserve it. Most of the book of Ezekiel is about people, book, the people of Israel who have strayed from God. But weaved throughout that book is the fact that God says, I'm going to intervene and I'm going to bring you to a place where you will love me, you will serve me. And I'm sure many of you know uh, the picture of the Valley of the Dry Bones where he takes what is a worst case scenario and shows that God gives flesh and, and sinew and breath. And, and so, folks, we need to see that. Th this verse tells us that God acts. God intervenes. I will. And by the, other, uh, by the way, the other phrase in the book of Ezekiel is this. That you may know that I am the Lord. When God judges, he says that you may know that I am the Lord. And when God pours grace that you may know that I'm the Lord. And we see this in this passage, this, this grace that God gives out. But, but, but again, I'm, and I'm wanting to end this, this is going to be my last point, that sinful people need not only converting grace. Often we think, you know, yeah, God was gracious to me because in my life, in 1975, He saved me. I was converted to Christ, and amazing grace, how sweet the sound. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's not just converting grace. This passage tells us, as in many other places, it's establishing grace. The good news is God establishes us. He holds us. He keeps us. He carries us through to the very end. I encourage you with that today. Difficult, negative passage, hard passage. I want to tell you what God starts in the life of a believer in converting grace, he carries through to completion. What he begins, he ends. What he begins, he perfects and he finishes. Grace is always a gift from God all the way, from the beginning right through to the end. 
And so ours is a dependent life. At conversion, after conversion, we, we need this, this keeping uh, of God in Christ, protection and strength. Those of you who are going through difficulties, I want to tell you that God will not let you go. When you feel you want to, to give it up, you want to run away, if you have, have experienced the grace of God in conversion, He'll keep you to the end. Hold you. I found uh, this comment from a very old author by the name of Alexander McLaren. Some of you might know of him. And uh, he gives an interpretation of this verse. And I thought, man, I can't quote it better than, better than he says it. So verse 21. If you have your Bible open, have a look at it. The anointing that he speaks of in the second clause is the means of the establishing of the first. Okay? So what is he saying? The, the anointing is what is going to bring about the establishment, is going to bring about that which he will do to keep you to the end. He goes on. That is to say that God confers Christian steadfastness, durability, endurance, by the bestowment of the unction of his divine spirit. The spirit of God working in the life of an ind individual establishes that person and will carry that person right through to the end. So he puts it differently. He says, I suppose I need not remind you that from the beginning to the end of Scripture, anointing, it's a concept we read of, especially in the Old Testament, is taken as the symbol of the communication of a true divine influence. Now he goes a little bit further. The oil, remember in the Old Testament, they used oil to anoint people, symbolic action. The oil poured on the head of a prophet, a priest, or a king was but the expression of the communication to the recipient, a prophet, a priest, a king, you need to know divine influence is what you need, and this anointing means that God is going to influence you. Divine influence which fitted him as well as designated him for the office that he filled. One more little paragraph from Alexander McLaren, just going into a little bit more detail. Now use your imagination. Oil put on the head of somebody in the anointing. There's a symbolism taking place. The flowing oil smooths the surface upon which it is spread. It supples the limbs. And it's nutritive and illumin and it is nutritive and illuminating. Thus giving an appropriate emblem of this. The secret silence, the quickening, the nourishing, the enlightening influence of the Holy Spirit, which God gives to all his sons and daughters. The work of the Spirit. The work of God's Spirit, planting a confidence about Jesus in Paul's heart and mind in the midst of being a victim of unfair and harsh criticism. And then he goes on, it's still not ended, the work of the Spirit, verse 22. He put his seal on us, gave us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, established, anointed, the presence of the spirit, also proof of authentic ownership. I belong to God because he has put his seal on me, the spirit of God. But the stamp is there, ownership, belonging to God, giving us also, as he goes on when he speaks about a guarantee, a taste of that which is to come in heaven up ahead. 
know what your best experience has been in terms of your walk with God. So I was listening to a comment on a podcast recently, and the response to the question was, take your best experience that you've had in a worship context, in your own devotional time, in your understanding, your connectedness, your intimacy with God, and what will be in heaven is going to be indescribably and infinitely better. You only have a taste here. Just a, just a taste. So there are implications of the work of the Holy Spirit. So Christ gives us his spirit, makes us more like Jesus. We often pray, Lord, make us more like Jesus. But what was Jesus like? Inflexible in the pursuit of all that is lovely and good. That Christ gives us his spirit is to cure our wandering of our hearts and bind us to himself. That Christ gives us his spirit is to lift us above selfish and cowardly dependence on lesser things or self-elevation. That Christ gives us his spirit is to cut the bonds that tie us to the world. That Christ gives us his spirit is to unite us to himself forever. So folks, that's the message. Let me just, a few words in conclusion. Sadly, tragically, I chose today not to uh, use any illustration. I have a file. And, and uh, a file I've been collecting for 30 years in ministry of uh, criticism. Some of it is legitimate. Probably most of it is legitimate. Um, some of it is unfair criticism. I didn't want to share any of that dirt here today. But it happens. It happens. Sadly, it happens. Being unfairly attacked and criticized by so-called professing believers happens and it hurts. Not just the individual, it hurts the body. There will be times, there have been times, where you will be falsely accused. How do you respond? How will you respond? It seems easy to have a knee-jerk reaction. It's more satisfying to respond with worldly wisdom. But it's better. It's right to respond as a recipient of grace. One who's been given the Holy Spirit, being able to say, and I conclude with this, we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not with earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, supremely towards you. Can you say that? Can I say that? Not always. Lord, I pray that you would help us. And we do confess, I certainly confess, Lord, the need for ongoing sanctification and growth. Thank you for your word this morning. And again, Lord, uh, the mold. You have given us such clear, such clear revelation. There's no doubt as to what pleases you, what honors you, and Lord, what is evidence of that which ought to be true in the life of someone who is a recipient of grace. I do pray that among us today, Lord, all of us would be those who have experienced undeserved mercy from your hand, given the gift of grace and of faith, enabling us to respond, repentance, trust in Jesus. And even as we sing, Lord, a song that is so true, uh, may we also, Lord, just rejoice in the reality of a baptism 
in the demonstration of your intervention in the lives of people, sinful people. And so take our congregation, take us forward, Lord, as those who have a hunger and thirst for righteousness, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.